0: Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this morning as we always do. We want to come. Lord, we want to dive into your word. Could this be true? Could it be true that we have a hope that extends beyond this life? Not just for existence, but for wholeness and complete wellness and no more tears. Lord, a Messiah that's come and made access, given access to that kind of future. Lord, not that we can't taste it now, but we won't see it fully realized till one day. But that hope drives us. That hope gets us up in the morning. So, Father, I'm praying that you'll be with us as we dive into your word this morning. And, Lord, just uh, expose your Messiah, expose your plan, expose your grand narrative to our minds in increasing ways so that we can give all of ourselves to the kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I know we've got a lot of guests this morning, but I will tell you this. We're going to continue the study on David. And this is a very significant moment in the life of David. When we last left David, he was dancing in his underwear. If some of you were like, what is Paul, Pastor Paul talking about earlier? He was dancing in his underwear as the Ark of the Covenant was brought in and as it was ushered into Jerusalem and it represented, as we've seen uh, all the way back to May 20th, it represented in many ways. The Messiah, it represented God's presence, and Jesus was, catch this this morning, Jesus was God's presence among us, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that is a wild, wild statement, and it's either true or it's not true, and if it's not true, it's just a wild tale that has led many, thousands, millions, I would even say billions of people over the last 2,000 years down a ridiculous trail of mythological thinking holding on to hope where there is none but if it's true god came and dwelled among men tabernacled with men templed with men made his tent pitched his tent with us if that's true that's life-changing that's a game changer nothing can ever be the same if that's true and so we left David last week. We left David having now the ark back in Jerusalem. And in fact, in in some unique ways, David had now worked hard on his own house, and he'd spent lots of money on him having a beautiful cedar-lined home. And then he looked out, I'm sure out of maybe his bedroom window and looked out and saw the tent, a tent and there, the ark, and he began to feel a little bit of guilt, like, I'm living in all this splendor, and the very presence of God is out in some makeshift tent. Shouldn't be. And this is what he said, Second Samuel chapter 7. Let me read for you. Now, it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Now, you realize this is the first time he's had any real peace. You do realize that. No more Philistines knocking at the gate, no more Goliath anymore, no more having to run from his own people, no more conspiracies, no more infighting between Joab and Abner that we'd seen a few weeks back. No, everything was, in fact, you've probably had those moments. There may be few and far between, but it's like, Maybe, maybe you just became an empty nester and now, you know, some of their problems are still maybe lingering, but they're kind of out there. And you have this moment financially, maybe you're okay. You've got this window of opportunity with health. Everything seems to seem, well, it's pretty good right now. Things are pretty good. Now, sometimes those things don't last very long, but we all know that there have been those moments, those moments where it seems like all is right in Beantown. Well, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, he said, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I've not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I've gone with all the sons of Israel, I never said a word about to any of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to the shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God's saying, I never said any of that. I don't know what you guys are so worried about. Why are you so worried about this? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are all over the earth. And I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel and I'm going to plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them Anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Now catch this. Now let me tell you something. This is something we're about to read that's called the Davidic Covenant. If you don't understand the Davidic covenant, you're not going to understand many references in the New Testament that are talking about Jesus being the son of David or the house of David or oh son of David. You'll hear that uh the refrain every once in a while in the New Testament. You want to understand this was a covenant now, a covenant made with David, and here it is. Are you ready? He's going to build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I'll be a father to him, and he's going to be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness will not depart from him. Not as I took it away from Saul, anyway, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now, there's a couple of things that I pick up from this that are astounding. Number one, David, let's just do a quick recount of your life. You were nothing You were out with a bunch of smelly sheep on the side of some mountain. Your own father didn't even think enough of you, as we remember a few weeks back. Your own father didn't even think enough of you to bring you before the prophet uh, to see if you might be the eventual king of Israel. I mean, you were an absolute nobody, and yet I took you from nowheresville. And I've now made you king over all the people, all my chosen people, who are going to mediate a covenant and here's what I'm going to do. I know you want to build a house for me, but as we see elsewhere in Scripture, you're a man of blood. There's too much blood all over you. You're a man of war, and you're not going to build my house. And then there's a shift, and it appears that he begins to say, well, it's going to be your son. And we know that Solomon built the temple. And in many ways, this references Solomon. This had an immediate effect. But there's something here that's kind of for Solomon and yet there's other aspects of it that there's no way that Solomon could ever build something that was going to last forever and in fact Solomon's temple would not last forever would it not at all it's completely destroyed and then here you had uh one of the great one of the great kings you know Herod the Great and he rebuilt it again in the during, prior to the time of Jesus and then it was destroyed again and down to, in fact, Jesus said, not even one stone's going to be left on another. And yet, here's his prophecy that there's going to be this amazing king that's going to rule in my name. And he's going to be one of your sons. And he's going to build this thing. And it's going to be forever. So is it Solomon or is it David? Now, there are many places in Scripture that we get what's called a dual fulfillment of prophecy. Some applies to the immediate future, and some looks beyond the future and looks into, way into the future. Looks beyond the present, I mean, and looks way into the future. And that's what we actually get. If you'll go ahead now to the next verse, David's prayer, listen to what David said. Then the day David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes. O Lord, for you've spoken also of the house of your servant concerning what? The distant future. Even David knew in that moment somehow what Nathan had said. It's not just about now. This is about the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Now, this is important. If you can grab this, if you can get a hold of this, this is another picture of Jesus emerging from the lips of the prophets 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. 1,000 years. I'm going to seat somebody on your throne, and he's going to build a temple, and it's going to last forever. Now, it's important that we look at this because I want to look at one thing before we go to this whole idea of I'm going to be a father to him and he's going to be a son to me. Now, many of you have said, maybe you've never really thought this. You're like, well, Jesus, how is Jesus God's son? What does that even mean? And I thought we were supposed to worship one God, but now he's got a son and who who did he have relations with? To have, to get, you know, her pregnant, a mother goddess that then has a son. I mean, what does this even mean, this idea of the son of God? And I want to go into that this morning, and it's gonna unfold for you something that's very, very powerful, and I think it'll deepen you in your faith. And some of you it may even shake to the core because you're gonna realize the depth and the gravity of what God has always been planning through Jesus. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter six. We're going to go forward now. The temple's now been built. Solomon is now dedicating the temple. And notice what he says here because it's instructive for us. Verse 7, 2 Chronicles 6, verse 7. He says, now, this is Solomon speaking at the dedication of the temple. David's now off the scene. He's passed away. He's not there anymore. It was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you're not going to build this house, but your son who's born to you, he shall build a house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled the word which he spoke, for I've risen in the place of my father, David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I've built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel." There I've set the ark, remember the ark, because we looked very deeply at that a number of weeks back, in which the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the sons of Israel. So, here, now this is fascinating because Solomon's not saying, look, uh, he, it was in the heart of my dad to build this, this amazing temple. He wanted to build it. And what we didn't get from the Second Samuel uh, picture earlier in 6... What's amazing and what Solomon says is that God's like, and it was good that it was in your heart. But guess what? The answer is no. Now, this is instructive for us. This is, there's a deep, deep insight here. Let me explain how. Let me think about this for a second. Have you ever done, had an idea in your head? Like, you know, I'd love to do this for God. I mean, I really want to make this happen for God. Uh, maybe, you wanted, maybe you wanted to start a Bible study, or maybe you wanted to go out and witness to somebody, or maybe you wanted just something that you wanted to do for God, and you gone out there, and it utterly collapsed around you. Complete failure. You're like, what in the world? I mean, I'm trying to do something for God, and nothing's going on here. And the answer, in the end, the answer's like, no. And yet, and this is the beauty of it, God said, but it's good that it was in your heart. But by the way, it wasn't my plan. Now there's some of you that can be a release to you this morning because you look back and go well, I'm not going to do that again you know because I, I tried that God stuff back then and I, and I had a plan I had all this plan and maybe you even, maybe you even extend yourself in a religious way in a, it in a, with a with a full idea that you're going to go out and do this extraordinary thing for God. I remember the first time I ever did a Bible study <clears throat> first time I ever decided to to lead one it was out, uh, it was out on a supplemental tour to the PJ tour and I said well there's no Bible study out here I'm gonna start a Bible study I'm going to do this extraordinary thing for God and so we set this whole thing up we got we rented this place and I put signs out of I'm still playing in the tournament but I'm, I'm thinking all right I'm going to put these signs all over the windows and everything and and Laura set up all these drinks and food and all this and we got all these chairs and we set this up and we waited and, and then Laura took the girls and they left it was just me sitting in there alone and uh, he's got about ten minutes till nobody showed up. And got about eight minutes till nobody showed up. About and it started the countdown. And I'm thinking, man, well, you know, golfers are late anyway. I'll get, it's no, you know, you know, how golfers are. They they can only make their tee times, but they can't make you know something like this. <clears throat> Five after, ten after, there were just four of us: Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and me. That's it. And I'm sitting there, Lord, Lord look at all the things that I, I was. Look at all the. Lord, I had this idea. to, to And yet, at, at least for that night, the answer was no. And I just thought, well, maybe I miss God. Maybe, you know, why is he testing me? Like all this, And then if you have this understanding, the Lord said, but you know, it was good that it was in your heart. Well done. I'm glad you wanted to do that. That's an honorable thing you wanted to do. You weren't out, you know, drinking and play, you know, going to the track and you know, playing cards and staying out to the middle and you know, wherever. I mean, you actually wanted to get and talk to people about me and you set it all up and it was good that it was in your heart, but the answer for that night anyway was no. And that's essentially what happened here. So sometimes we have to analyze, you know, is this Maybe God at this point, maybe you're doing something and you've extended yourself to do something you felt God wanted you to do. And maybe God this morning, and this is the beauty of the Holy Spirit, is saying just hang in there. It just hasn't come to fruition yet, but it's going to happen. It doesn't mean just quit. This this isn't a word to you that the Lord's saying, no, sometimes you may need to go through a dry season. And as it happened there, at least as the nights continued to progress, that thing grew. We baptized people. The stuff started happening. It was the Lord. That was a hang in there moment. But then there are other times where you just, you know, maybe it's not in God's plan. It's not working. You've prayed it through. And all of a sudden, you just feel the Lord. And make, Because you need to have this in your heart. This, it, there is precedence, like legal precedent here. Sometimes if the Lord can speak to you and say, it's good that you wanted to do that. But the answer was no. Now I want you to move on to something else. And I'm going to give you something else that I want you to do this time. You say, well, how do you ascertain that? Sometimes you just do things. Notice he got counsel from his friend. Nathan goes, You yeah, absolutely go for it, man. It's, it's in your heart, go for it. Can I just tell you, as an encourager and someone who doesn't always have a word, there may be people around here, you may go to Pastor Paul and he may say, look, absolutely, you want to start a group, go for it, man, just go for it. Do what all is in your heart. Yeah, maybe he'll, he'll have a dream that night and he'll come back to you the next day and go, no, the Lord says no. I mean, I don't know, but you get the point. But it's good that you wanted to. This gives us some support. Now, I want to get into this issue of the Son of God because this is a fascinating topic to me because Jesus just emerges and is like, I'm the Son of God. And it's like, who does this guy think he is? And that's what the religious thought. How how would you even describe to a friend, if you had somebody say, Son of God, what does that even mean? Now, if you've grown up in and around the church, you're just like, well, I know Jesus is like the Son of God. His last name is Christ, you know, Jesus Christ, and He's the Son of God. And you never thought about it. You never questioned it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But even if you've been in that position not to really think about it, I'm going to take you a little, we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive, and I hope it's going to confirm in your own spirit that God's plan was always to hang out with His creation. Always. Always. Now, what does that mean for you? That means He wants a relationship with you. He wants your primary identity to be in him. He he doesn't want, he didn't care anything about religion. He wants a relationship directly and personally with you. He wants to dwell among his people. And then we're going to, at the end, we're going to come and see this consummated and see, wow, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and he is building his temple and the temple is you. It's not just a building. The temple, the plan was always you. Oh, this is a historical story. Some of you already fallen asleep this morning going back talking about something that happened 3,000 years ago. I mean, come on, let's talk about something that's relevant, something that's today. This is all this history. What does this even mean? It means everything to you. Because what this is saying, God is in a still, small voice saying to you this morning, I want you to know me. I already know you, but I want you to know me. Let's enter into a covenantal relationship And you now will become a son of the living God. Sound kind of wild, doesn't it? So what? What was it that Nathan was trying to communicate? God was communicating through Nathan that He's going to be a father to this someone who sits on the throne of David in the future, in the distant future. What does that even mean? Well, first of all, I want you to go to Micah five two because this is important conceptually. You need to understand. When we get into this, you're going to think, "Well, wait a minute, that." i'm I'm confused now because so we need to lay this as a precedent micah 5 verse 2 some of you i remember a guy named tom anderson is a beautiful beautiful guy um uh, was on my board when i first started ministry over two decades ago he was an attorney here uh just recently passed away within the last year or so tom anderson amazing guy complete atheist was uh, head of the uh, Trial Lawyers Association in California, president of the Trial Lawyers Association, was on some very high vis- highly visible uh, cases through the years, and he was a complete atheist. And uh, he just said, well, I'm going to take a few months, and I'm going to just s- show how stupid this book is. And he took a little sabbatical from his work just because his wife was starting to have a Jesus experience, so he was going to completely uh, uncover it because that's where he was gifted. He was gifted in trial law. And so he went to the Bible, and he began to dive in, and what happened? He became a radical, rabid follower of Jesus, a powerful follower of Jesus. And it was a big shift for him, a big shift for him. And uh, I'll never forget, he became a very close friend of mine. I said, what really turned it for you? He said, Micah 5, verse 2. He said, I-, I couldn't get around it. It was, it was shouting at me. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And that kind of goes in line with the Davidic ruler, this messianic somebody in the line of David that's going to come and build a kingdom that's going to last forever. And then it says this, very instructively, for his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity now this is a wild statement now this you got to realize this is coming out of a time of over 500 years before the time of Jesus this prophet is speaking about the time actually Micah is about the time of Isaiah about 700 years before the time of Jesus now it says some very fascinating things Bethlehem are you kidding me that's a little dinky no place I mean, that's like saying, uh, and the ruler of all the world is going to come out of Hemet, California. <laughs> so, you know, New York City, maybe. Hong Kong, you know. London, somewhere. Hemet? What good thing can come out of Hemet? I mean, Bethlehem? you got to be kidding me. Bethlehem and the tribe of Judah. Specifically the tribe of Judah. And, but he's going to rule in Israel. But here's the fascinating part. His comings and goings have been from all of eternity? What does that even mean? He's a preexistent one. I mean, that right there. Why did that impact Tom so much? Because he realized at that moment, at that precious moment of clarity, in doing all his trying to just prove this to be an idiotic book, he couldn't prove that that wasn't written prior to the time of Jesus because no scholar no scholar worth his weight would ever argue that the Greek version, the Septuagint of the Old Testament, and all these other things weren't codified well in advance of Jesus. And then Jesus claims to be the one, and he was, happened to be born in Bethlehem, came from the tribe of Judah, and then claimed to be the Son of God. Hey, you know, we, and a lot of Jewish people, they will argue, they say, that's ridiculous. Are you talking about your God actually wore diapers? I mean, you'll hear that. Among the Jewish community. We worship one God. You you Christians are you worship a multiplicity of gods. We don't do that. We're Jews, we worship one God. Even if they're not maybe even religiously practicing, they just can't imagine that anybody would emerge and claim to be the Son of God. It'd be like believing into David Koresh. I mean, who would do that? I'm the Son of God and I, and I live and I and I my comings and goings have been from all of eternity, and I'll be born in Waco. <laughs> I'll do my ministry in Waco. I mean, You just say, well, that's ridiculous. And many people did that during the time of Bethlehem. Are you kidding me? Might have been a little bit more compelling for Mr. Koresh. Had a 1,000 years, 700 years, even 1,500 years, people began to write about a guy named David that was going to be born into a specific family, born to a specific place. And then he was actually then raised from the dead. And thousands upon thousands of people's lives were changed. Then you might begin to get a little traction. None of those things occurred. And none of those things have ever occurred for any religious figure in the history of planet Earth other than Jesus. His comings and goings have been from all of eternity. It's not hard for him to tell you what's going to happen in the future. He was outside of time and space, which all of eternity, that's all eternity means anyway. That doesn't just mean endless amount of time. It's outside the parameters of time and space. And that's Jesus. He came to dwell Among men. There are different applications for the Son of God. I'm going to go through these very quickly and briefly so we can get to the punchline this morning. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, The people of Israel at times were called the sons of God. Okay? Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Okay, so in some senses, Israel was the son of God. In some senses, Hosea 1:10 says something similarly. Uh, Hosea 1:10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, "You are not my people," it will be said to them, "You are the sons of the living God." So, in some way, Israel collectively were the sons of God. But there's something very different uh, about this picture in 2 Samuel, isn't there? I mean, something's emerging there that's different. Okay. The Israelite kings at various points, Psalm chapter 2, especially, Psalm chapter 2, we get a picture of, during the coronation of most of the Israelites' kings, they would say, Now this is the Son of God, the Son of God. So Israelites' kings, when they would come into a place of governance in lieu of or for God, not in lieu of, but for God, as governors and orchestrators, they were at various points. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. They were begotten of God and yet even Psalm 2:7 becomes a messianic prophecy because that prophecy couldn't have even been fulfilled anyway. Let's go to Psalm chapter 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, today I have begotten you. You say, well, this is starting to confuse the issue because, wait a minute, uh, so anybody could be a son of God. Israel was a son of God. The kings were sons of God. Uh, so what is relevant about that? And then also, and to add, to the conspiracy here, angels at various points, Genesis chapter 6, verse 2 and 4, and also Job 38 says that angels in some way were sons of God. Are you saying that Jesus was just a de facto son of God because he was born in Israel? Are you saying that Jesus, the son of God, wasn't a specifically important uh, place of reference? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that at all. We've already seen if it wasn't for Micah 5.2 this is a different kind of son this is not just something that's conferred onto israel or an israelitish king or an angel this is something very distinct because this son is the ultimate davidic forever son the forever son now what's fascinating about this is that the bible talks in extraordinary language about this coming ruler this coming son of god this coming Davidic, sit on the throne forever, ever and ever build a temple that will never be destroyed kind of a guy. And it also talks the same thing about God and it almost becomes mixed up. You could almost, you could superimpose one on the other. Let me explain what I mean if you got confused by what I just said. Psalm chapter 83 verse 18. This is important. I know this is Again, I, was, I had dinner with some friends the other night, Laura and I did, and we were talking about this, and I said, look, there's some blocking and tackling things that have to happen, and, and sometimes people start to drift off or lose. If you'll hang in there, this will explode in the end and will grab you intellectually and spiritually and emotionally. I'm telling you it will. Psalm 83, verse 18, speaking about God, what does it say? That they may know you alone, God, whose name is the Lord. You are the Most High... Over all the earth. Everybody'd say, Look, if, if you're, well, I'm in a church, of course they're gonna be saying God is a ruler of all the earth. Okay, well, that's a Christian position. Or if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you'd say, Absolutely, God's the life, He's the head, He's the head guy, right? A ruler over all the earth. He created the whole cosmos, hundreds of billions of galaxies. He certainly has rule over some little tiny mud heap off in some distant galaxy in the middle of nowhere in a solar system with other planets that revolve around this sun. I mean, big deal. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Of course, if he can say that, he's ruler over the earth. But now listen to something. Psalm 89, now this is huge. Psalm 89, now listen to what it begins to talk about, this coming ruler. These are the royal psalms. You ready? I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Now, At first you're like, okay, this is David. But now it's starting to drift into a place of, wait a minute, this is is starting to sound like God stuff. Hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. I mean, really, for David? He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now catch this. And my loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. Now, most scholars believe this is clearly not talking just about David. This is what we just saw in Sam. This has a direct fulfillment in part, but then it has a future picture. So, yeah, we're talking about David. Yes, we're talking about Solomon at the moment. But look beyond that because there, there are descriptions that cannot be consummated in the context of Solomon and David. It's got to move beyond that. So look kind of, here's David and Solomon. But wait a minute. There's some comings and goings and rulers and above all the kings of the earth. David was a king, but he was never king of all the earth. I mean, if you look at Israel, he had a pretty big territory for a you know fairly short period of time. But I don't know that you could adequately say he was the king of all the earth and and, I mean, it's just, now that seems to be going beyond the pale. And that his hand is on the seas and the rivers, and he, he moves the rivers where he will. I mean, those are God kind of attributes. So now it's confusing. It's a Davidic son, but let's look beyond David. Let's look beyond Solomon. He say, well, maybe it was another Israelitish king. I mean, there were only five really righteous kings, all of them in the south, Hezekiah and Joshua. I mean, there were a few, Josiah, I should say. There, there were a few, but none of them fit this bill. What what are they seeing? They're seeing Jesus. Psalm 86, clearly about God. Verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they will glorify your name. All right? But now Psalm 72, verse 8 through 11, listen. May he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. But wait a minute. David, Solomon, really? The whole earth? Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let the kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Bow, serve, lick the dust. Wait a minute. What are we talking about here? Who are we talking about here? Psalm 45, one of the most well-known passages that now combine the two. Listen to this, if this won't blow your mind. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. All right, God's throne, of course. Yeah, it's forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved the righteousness and hated wickedness. Clearly about God. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Wait a minute. Who's this talking about? It's, it's about God? Wait a minute. God, what? what? Therefore, God, your God. See, the New Testament picks up on this. You see it very clearly in Hebrews 1. He, Paul's trying to, what the apostle Paul's trying to do to his Jewish friends. Remember, the, 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 book, the letter of the Hebrews is written to the Jewish community. Okay, to the believing Jewish community saying, listen, he says, this isn't talking about the angels. He said, to which of the angels said, you are my son today, I have begotten you, Psalm 2, he quotes, and I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Is this talking about the angels? Paul's trying to get the religious community's attention. He goes, this isn't talking about angels. Who do you think this is talking about? This was written a thousand years ago. Who do you think this was talking about? he'll be a son to me. And when he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says this, and then he quotes Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever in the righteous scepter. And You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your commandments. He's saying God's been talking about this forever. We just never saw it in the context until now Jesus, the Jesus event has occurred. And now this mysterious thing is being unpacked before our eyes. The son of David wasn't talking about Solomon. He's talking about Jesus. God? Your God has anointed you above your foot. It's Jesus. Worship? Psalm 110, it's it's amazing. (coughs) Excuse me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. What does that mean? What is Paul? David's writing this. The Lord said to my Lord. David's David's already saying this is not about me. It's not about my son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord will stretch forth your scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Welcome to church at the red door. This is is being fulfilled right here. People are volunteering to do all kinds of things all over the valley in direct fulfillment of people bowing before this Davidic guy, the son of both God and man. And they're volunteering freely. Your youth are as the dew. The, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Don't have the time to get into that. We'd start a series there, and that'd last five weeks. But that's powerful. Are you with me? Mark chapter 12. We're gonna, now we're going to start to wind this down and get to the real moment. Are you ready? Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? So Jesus is then with the religious people. Tell tell me this. How do the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself says, and now he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? In other words, what Jesus is saying is David's going to have this son somewhere in the distant future. And he's going to call him Lord. Why is he calling him Lord? Why is he not just calling him son? And then it's just said in the large crowd, enjoy listening to him. Is <laughs> that that's cool. We, we can't answer that. He's confounding the Pharisees, and we don't like the Pharisees because they're all a bunch of holier-than-thou kind of people, and they keep us at length. They keep us at arm's distance. We're the unclean ones, and now he's just taking them to the mat because they're denying who he is, and they just love to listen to Jesus. They're like, oh, we never saw that. What is that? Psalm 110. That's amazing. What? Maybe there's, maybe there's something different than what we've always understood. We could go on. Let me just tell you something. And the Acts chapter two, same thing. Jesus emerges everywhere. Now, just one thing that quickly—it's not even—we're not going to go there. But Daniel, do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They get thrown into the fire, and then Nebuchadnezzar looks in there, and he sees, "He says, wait a minute, I see four people in there." And they went in bound, right? They went in bound, and of course. Now they're walking around in the fire. And the, the ones that even came close to the entrance of the fire died. That's how hot it was. And they're in there. They were bound, and now they're not bound, and yet there's not three anymore. There's four. And you, and you know what he said? He said, there's one in there like the son of the gods. And then when they came out, they didn't even smell the smoke. See, Jesus, I believe, was in the fire With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As not the son of the gods, but the son of God. You see it over and over in scripture. Jesus just kind of does, he just emerges. He emerges with Manoah. He emerges with Gideon. He emerges in unique places, sometimes looking like a man, sometimes not. Daniel, later in Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision. And he says he sees one like the son of man, so he looks like a man. And he comes up to the Ancient of Days, which is clearly God the Father, and he emerges and all power and authority and dominion are given over to him, the ultimate ruler. This is in virtually every book of the Old Testament. Jesus was always the plan. And then finally, Jeremiah 30 verse 9, it says, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Now I want you to read something. There's one of the most astounding, uh, I love this guy, uh, Michael Brown. He's a Messianic Jew. He's a Jewish man, doctor, who believes in Jesus and has written extensively answering questions that Jewish people have about these various things. You may have Jewish, you may be Jewish here this morning and you go, I don't know about all this Jewish thing. That's a Christian hybrid. It came later. It doesn't make any sense. We clearly have our God. They have a multiplicity of gods, et cetera, et cetera. Let me just tell you what he said about what we just read. And I'm very uh, beholden to Dr. Michael Brown. Just listen to what he says. Now catch this, and then I'm going to show you something that's going to just blow your mind. It says, let me state these facts clearly. According to the Hebrew Bible, what does he mean by the Hebrew Bible? The Old Testament, okay? Not the New Testament, the Old Testament. Of course, the New Testament a, is a Hebrew book, too. The Davidic king was called God's son and firstborn, and he was described as begotten by God, Psalm 2.7. He was to be praised, this Davidic king, extolled, served, adored. How much more could this be said of the supreme Davidic king, the Messiah, the ultimate son of God? We know, of course, that as Jews, we are to have no other gods except for the Lord. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. And as we saw in answering the last objection, a true Testament faith in Jesus the Messiah agrees with this both in letter and spirit. But here's something interesting to consider. Now, listen to this. Even if you didn't understand that the Messiah was both divine, comings and goings have been from all of eternity, and human, Daniel 7, I saw one looking like a man. Coming up to the Ancient of Days and all power and dominion and authority was given him forever and ever that all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations would obey him and serve him. He says, even if you didn't think he was divine and human and therefore in praising and adoring him, we really are praising and adoring God, you would still need to recognize that every major Hebrew word for worship, listen, praise, service, adoration, obeisance, that is used in the Bible with reference to God is also used with reference to the Messiah, the Davidic king. These are indisputable facts. Do you see what he's saying to his Jewish, his Jewish audience here? He's saying, if you say, even if you say, ah, we don't believe that, your God wears diapers, I don't believe in all that stuff, even if you think that, every single word that's used for God to praise, to worship, to serve, to adore, to give obeisance to. all Every single word is not only applied to God. We've just looked at a few places. We could have looked at, you know, Psalm 83, Psalm 100. We could have looked at many other places in the, in the text. Every word that's applied to God is then somewhere hundreds and hundreds of years in advance of Jesus emerging and saying, I'm the Son of Man and I'm the Son of God, emerging and saying every one of those descriptive words for God is also used for this Davidic king. So why? That's a big question. Why? God wanted there to be absolutely no question, no question, when Jesus emerged as to who he was. Now, you may not understand son of man or son of God or these terms that emerge from the old covenant, but a Jewish audience would, certainly a learned Jewish man or, or a woman would. So what happened? God, the plan has always been that God wanted to be with us. First of all, in Exodus chapter 25, God's presence filled the tent. He said, you build me a tent, this tabernacle I'm telling you to build, and I'm going to come and I'm going to put my presence there. Okay? So catch this. First, God filled the tent. Are you with me? With his presence. He says, go build a sanctuary and I'll dwell among you. And then God said, all right, you can build a temple, Solomon. And what happened? At Solomon's dedication, 2 Chronicles 6, and the presence of God emerged and filled the temple. First God pitched a tent and dwelled in it. Then God pitched another tent called a temple with Solomon and filled it with his presence. And then Jesus, catch this, Jesus is born, and John, who was a fisherman, now you talk about one of the going to the heights of understanding in John chapter one, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He then what? And He dwelled among us. The exact same word for dwelling, or pit, it means to pitch a tent. What John is saying, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, John 1.14. So if you put John 1.1 and John 1.14 together, and he pitched a tent. So it started, God says, I'm going to give him an object lesson. When you come out of Egypt, I want you to build a tent, and I'm going to fill it with my presence. I'm going to pitch my tent with you. And then you want to build a temple? That's fine, David. You can't do it, but your son will. And they built this next tent, which was a lot more elaborate, called the temple, and God filled it, and he came down and pitched a tent with men again in the temple. Then the temple was destroyed. Then it was rebuilt. And then here Jesus emerges, and oh, wait a minute, Jesus. And what does it say about the Messiah? Isaiah 7 had said, the virgin is going to be with the child, and I want you to name him Emmanuel. That's 700 years before Jesus. Then Jesus emerges, and they call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us which means God came and pitched a tent again but he didn't need a tent he didn't need a temple he now has the Davidic son I'm gonna pitch my tent in the Sun and I'm gonna go down and dwell with my people in the form of my son who I've been talking about for hundreds of years but it doesn't stop there Jesus isn't here anymore we say, "Well, Jesus is among us. He is in spirit, but I can't, I can't feel. I can't hug him. I can't receive a physical hug from Jesus. I need somebody. You know. I mean, I want to believe this, but I. He, he, I know he pitched his tent. He pitched it in a tent. You know, and Moses would come out, and his face would be a glow, and." He pitched it in the temple and it, the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple and then Jesus emerges and I can see that. I mean, think about that. I mean, I mean he's walking on the water. He's healing thousands of people. Uh, people are being raised from the dead just by, just by a word and a touch from him. I mean, I get it. God's in that guy. God pitched a tent with us in Jesus, but there is no physical Jesus anymore. And then Paul says something extraordinary. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know what he says now? You're the temple. Your body is a living temple. See, God wants to pitch his tent again. But he doesn't want to do it in the wilderness in a tent. He doesn't want to do it in a tabernacle or a temple. And he already did it in Jesus. And now you know what he wants to do? He wants to pitch his tent again in you. And so when Paul says and uses this language, you're the temple, right? He said, how can you be fornicating? How can you be giving your body over to sexual sin? How can you do that? Don't you realize you're the temple of the living God? God's plan from the beginning was to fill a tent, to fill a temple, to fill his son and be God among us. And then by his death, burial, and resurrection, Those who believe into that through the blood, that's why we're church at the red door, I'm going to come and I'm going to pitch my tent and they're going to be my tent. Now that should blow your mind. You're the the tabernacle. You're a wandering tabernacle. W-A-N-D-E-R. I don't want you to be W-O-N-D-E-R anymore. (laughs) Wondering if you are. If you invite Jesus in, he comes in and he pitches his tent inside of you. And that's what a Christian is. I don't know what a Christian is. That's what a Christian is. Someone who's God, through his Holy Spirit, has pitched his very presence on the inside of you. We are the church, the, su- the pillar and support of the truth. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple. That's why I'm not concerned about some future rebuilding of the temple or this or that. I don't know. I don't care. If God does it, fine. If he doesn't, oh, he said it in his word. Look, it's... That gets in all in all kinds of, what I do know, interpretations, what I do know is this, that God wants to pitch his tent in you. You say, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I can become a Christian. Does God live on the inside of you? That's all it is. The Bible says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's why he told the Colossians. Paul told the Colossians. Christ on the inside of you. Are you his tent? We're going to close with this worship video. It comes from the very land of Israel, okay? It's called Emmanuel, God with us. This is filmed, this is filmed in Israel, right at the place where Jesus walked. It's, it's, it's performed by believing Jews who say, now, it's not about the temple or the tent or any of that anymore. All that our forefathers considered important, he's living in us. And God came in human form and pitched his tent in Christ. Let's listen to this video.